Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. I'm glad to see you've returned once again to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I regret to inform you that you've found me in a bit of a state, but I am never too distraught to show you one of the fine curiosities that we have here in the shop, and I thought maybe this might be quite interesting to you. Uh, let me take the lid off this soapstone container. It may look like simple, simple stony soil, but this is no simple stony soil. This is the soil of a man's heart. And yes, sometimes the soil of a man's heart is stonier. And that is the subject of sorts today on this episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop that I am calling a death in the family, pet cemetery, and the loss of our beloved cat. Like many Stephen King fans, uh, Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which was published in 1983, has to be, hands down, one of my favorite books of his, one of my favorite novels, and one of my favorite film adaptations, or at least one of them is. And if this is a, a, a book that is so heart-wrenching and heartwarming in some regards, this is a book that is full of terror, uh, some of the worst nightmares a, a person can have, especially those with children. Uh, even if you don't have children, I don't have any children, um, but the thought of a death of a child is just a horrific thing. I have many nephews and nieces that uh, I, I love like they were my own children, and to think about anything happening to them uh, when they were growing up, even now as they're all adults uh, or going into adulthood, I I just I perish the thought of, of anything horrible happening to them. So Stephen King's Pet Cemetery is one of those books that plays off those nightmares that parents or those with young loved ones or loved ones in general can really relate to and grab a hold of and sink their teeth into and i think that's probably why uh, so many people love this book because the horror is so uh, while it is fantastical in its uh, representation the horrors within this book are quite real and tangible uh, to the to the everyday person and this is a book that has crossed my mind several times over the past uh, couple months back in uh, probably mid-January, uh, my wife and I found out that our, our little cat, Portia, my wife has had Portia for uh, over 10 years. And when I came into their life, uh, you know, my, my wife and I, when we started uh, hanging out and started dating and then got married, Portia has been a part of that. You know, it was like we had a little family. Uh, neither my wife or I have kids, uh, but we had Portia. Who, you know, we weren't one of these couples that went around dressing our cat up in costumes or pushing around a buggy, nothing crazy like that. But we loved this this sweet little loving cat like it was a child, like it was our child, like this was our family. And as I, I told my wife uh, and on a, a personal Facebook post, I didn't realize I was going to have my heart stolen twice because my wife stole it when I met her. And when I got introduced to Portia, Portia stole my heart as well a second time. I just loved uh, that cat. Uh, my wife just, you know, that cat's been a part of her life for the past decade, over a decade. And she has had that time to build that bond. And in the short time I was, you know, in the past five years or so, Portia quickly became uh, something that uh, I just became very attached to because this cat, uh, so sweet and loving. And we'll talk about more of that uh, coming up later in the episode. But regardless, uh, back in mid-January, we found out that uh, she was suffering from kidney failure. And the vet told us she had about six months to live. And she did not make it six months. We had to take her to the vet here this past Thursday on St. Patrick's Day and uh, have her put to sleep. 
probably one of the most horrific experiences of my life. Not that it was not done properly, not that it was done, uh, not any, any part, uh, uh, played by the vets. Uh, they did a fantastic job and they were so supportive and so caring. It was just the, the whole situation. I had never, uh, had to have a pet put to sleep in my, you know, almost 50 years on this earth. And, uh, to, to, to go through that was, uh, traumatic. Uh, my best friend died uh, which may be a subject for another um, episode, uh, but he died when we were 21 in a car crash, along with another very close friend of mine. But my best friend dying, uh, we'd been best friends since first grade, and uh, the day I found out he passed away uh, was just probably one of the hardest days of my life. And this, I mean, outside of the death of a, an immediate family member of my wife, uh, this ranks up there almost as, as traumatic and almost as hard to deal with as, as losing my best friend just because of the circumstances, you know, uh, this little cat was so loving and such a integral part of my life and my existence and to have to ease her suffering, uh, because she wasn't doing well. Uh, she was okay up until uh, probably last Sunday. I'm recording this on Sunday for Monday. Uh, last Sunday, we probably had our last really good day with her where I was working on last Monday's podcast and my wife was sitting in the chair in, in our little office or we call it the rumpus room. Portia came in and was kind of milling about and I picked her up and was holding her and she was purring and we knew we had little time left with her. Uh, so my wife took some pictures and the next day she was totally different. I mean, over the past few weeks, she'd stopped moving around as much. She spent most of her time laying on our bed throughout the day. She'd get up to go eat, uh, maybe drink some water, uh, use the litter box, but she became very lethargic and from last Sunday to Monday, it was just like night and day. She just uh, started retreating and she wasn't eating, barely drinking. Uh, she would not want us touching her before she'd love to get pet and her neck scratched and scratched under her chin and she stopped wanting that. And if we paid her any attention, she'd get up off the bed and go get some water and then she would come back and hide under our dresser and that was not her. And then there were other things. She was having trouble walking. She couldn't make it from the kitchen to the bedroom uh, without having to, to stop and gather herself, rest. Uh, I don't know, but it became apparent that she was struggling and she was in a lot of pain and we had to do what... And I know people say, you know, you, you, you take a vet and put them to sleep when they're suffering and it's a mercy and you're doing it because you love them. But somehow that just doesn't make it any easier and it doesn't I mean in my mind I, I can justify it I can I can say yes you know we, we did this because we love her we we took away the pain but the fact that I had to take this this loving little creature to the vet and and have them put her to sleep have them kill her it's just so hard for me to deal with. And it's so hard for me to take and wrap my mind around that. And I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to break down. And I don't know how many times I'm going to have to stop recording uh, so I can have a good cry. But, uh, but I've been struggling with, with all of that. And in, in all of that, I have just thought a lot about Pet Cemetery and the things in that book uh, don't, directly correlate but so many things make so much more sense now and so i thought i would like to do an episode one to pay tribute to my wife and i's uh, cat portia who's no longer with us and to uh talk about how this real life event kind of correlates with some of the themes and some of the things that happen in Pet Cemetery, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Stephen King novel. I mean, there's there's probably Pet Cemetery, It, maybe Misery, probably in my top three 
but Pet Cemetery probably has to be one of my favorite novels, uh, if not my favorite novel of Stephen King, uh, and and one of my favorite movies. The well, we'll we'll get into the movies as well. My my thoughts on those a little bit later, but I'd like to talk about those you know in, in briefly as well. But Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. One of the things I love about it is you've got this family. They're they're city folks. They're from Chicago. They're moving to rural Maine so he can work at a, a local college, I believe. It's been a long time since I've read it. It's been a long time since I've watched the movies, but they're coming to this country setting. And it's very idyllic. It's very, maybe not quite Norman Rockwellian, but you've got this family there in this old country house where the kids can play and there's a tire swing and it's just, you know, you got the, the next door neighbor that's the old folksy old man, old manor that it just it looks like the picture perfect scene uh, of happiness and to know that nothing but tragedy is going to befall this family uh, because it is a Stephen King story is is just uh, a setup for for heartbreak but you've had this family you meet this family Lewis Creed Rachel Creed Ellie and Gage Creed the kids and you really like these characters right off the bat. Uh, at least I did. I liked Lewis Creed. Lewis Creed kind of came across as a, you know, smart college guy, but he seemed like a, a bit of an everyman. And, and Stephen King is really good at writing characters like that. Rachel, uh, she um, has her faults, but there again, you you still care about this character. Ellie and Gage, you know, little kids. Stephen King writes little kids really well in the sense that you know a lot of main character little kids uh danny torrance uh ellie creed you know they're wise beyond their years and i know some people don't get that but if you've ever listened to kids uh my nephews and nieces uh, sometimes would say things that i'm like wow that's that's profound <laughs> and they're just you know however many years old or if i'm on facebook some of my friends will post little conversations that they've had with their kids that are just you know sometimes kids can astonish you with how profound and how like i said wise beyond their years they can be and stephen king uh, I think he taps into that. I think he taps into a lot of the uh, experience he's had with his own kids. You know, Stephen and, and Tabitha are both smart folks, so I imagine they raised their kids to be quite intelligent at a young age, or or at least the the kids experienced a, a level of intelligence at a young age that may have been beyond their years. And I think Stephen King kind of tapped into that because uh, Stephen King really does draw on his experiences with his kids. Uh, I know, especially with this book, from what I remember hearing, and I, I may be wrong on this, but there's a lot of things that uh, came from personal experiences. Uh, Ellie's cat dying, Church, kind of was inspired by Stephen King's daughter Naomi and her cat dying. Uh, Gage and what happens to him is inspired by, I believe it was Owen, uh, it, it could have been Joe, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Owen, uh, you know, a situation where he was running towards the road and Stephen King had to snatch him up before he got there and, and got hit potentially. So a, a lot of things in here, uh, Stephen King has drawn from his own personal experiences with his family. And I think in such, that is what is at the heart of Pet Cemetery, is the loss of a child and you know, Stephen King has been asked about what scares him over the years. And I know he usually, uh, for a lot of times, he'll give this cavalier answer, you know, the boogeyman in the closet or the monster under the bed. But but this really, to me, uh, I think is what really scares Stephen King. And it scares a lot of parents. It is the thing that keeps parents up at night is the loss of a child, any child, whether it's an adult child or a young child, as we'll see in this situation. But he paints this picture of this, this idyllic family in this beautiful country setting. And then it just all snowballs from there into the horror that is the pet cemetery and i'm not going to talk about the the remake of pet cemetery 
I'm going to, I mean, I will touch base on my thoughts on that later, but I am going to kind of compare and contrast some of the things from the 1989 film and the book uh, as we, we kind of talk about the book. And one of the things that uh, I really uh, liked about the book is the walk to the pet cemetery. They Ellie finds this path and Judd says that he's going to take them on this walk to the pet cemetery. And, and I like the... In the book, the walk to the pet cemetery just goes on forever. It's not a short walk. In the movie, the 1989 film, uh, they make it seem like it's just down a short path, and then there's the pet cemetery. But in the book, it's a much longer, uh, much more arduous walk to get to the pet cemetery by itself, let alone the cemetery beyond the barrier. But I liked the design of the pet cemetery in the 1989 film because I thought it really represented kind of how I pictured the pet cemetery in my head. And I don't know, maybe I I think I did see the movie before I read the book. So maybe that influenced that, but but even reading it, I'm like okay, they they really paid attention to detail of creating the cemetery how it's described in the book for, for the most part. And that's one scene where I, I really liked it because that's where Judd's talking about to Ellie about uh, pets dying and the pet cemetery is where the dead speak. And she gets scared and he's like, no, 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 on their tombstones. Because this really is all about death, this story. Uh, not just the death of church and not just the death of Gage, but just death in general and dealing with death. Dealing with the specter of death hanging over your head. Dealing with the grief that that comes from death and this really is kind of the introduction to that and very much plays into the old rule that you can't bring a gun out in the first act and not fire it in the third uh, because if you're bringing up death in the first act somebody's going down sooner or later and it also really opens the door to the rift between lewis and rachel creed because Lewis is raised very much of a, a Christian mindset. Uh, once you die, you go to heaven. And Rachel is maybe not so much that she doesn't believe that or never believe that, but she is traumatized by the events of her past and the torture of her parents leaving her to watch her ailing sister Zelda and experience the death of the traumatic death of of this sister and that's really kind of made her i if she had any faith uh it's made her question it and it's made her reject the idea of even dealing with death in any way good bad or indifferent uh, she does not want to talk about it she does not want to think about it she does uh, essentially wants to uh, I'm guessing, and like I said, it's been a long time since I've read the book, but uh, it's kind of a bury your head in the sand sort of mentality. If you don't talk about death, it's not going to happen. And if you do talk about death, you know, that's just uh, adding to the trauma that she's already experienced. And I think it leads into, I think that really harkens back to the trip to the pet cemetery and the two mindsets. Ellie hears that cemeteries are what, where the dead speak and she gets scared and Judd on the other hand looks at it as a good thing and I think that is the two uh, ways that Lewis and Rachel experience death with Rachel death is a bad thing it's a scary thing it's a thing to fear and cower from and with Lewis who is a doctor and deals with death probably quite often uh, understands that you know Death is just moving on to the next existence, whether you believe in heaven, whether you believe in whatever. I think a lot of people can relate to those two ways of looking at death. You know, so there's some people that uh, death is a frightening prospect. And then there are other people who uh, death, it's not the end. It's just the, the next chapter. And I like the way St Stephen King kind of uh, broaches that with those two characters. But r business really picks up when we do have the death of the cat. Winston Churchill gets hit on the road by one of the semi-trucks that travel uh, up and down this road at ridiculous speeds. And that's where Judd 
introduces Lewis to the the real cemetery, the cemetery beyond the barrier. And he takes Lewis to this this burial ground. It used to be an old Micmac tribe burial ground until they realized that the ground was sour. Now, I know some people, uh, a lot of the younger uh, generations uh, <laughs> sit there and, and want to oh, this is problematic, this, oh, it's Indian burial grounds, they're may blaming it on the Indians. Well, if you read the book, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was actually the tribe, the Micmac tribe, used this area, this ground as a burial ground until they realized that the ground was sour. And if I'm not mistaken, it's blamed on... The white man, something the white man did to that area that soured the ground and made it so the, the Micmac tribe couldn't use that as a burial ground anymore. So yeah, there again, you know, it's it's a lot of some some younger generational folks are just looking to be offended and looking to virtue signal that, oh, look at me, I'm pointing the finger at you because you are not very nice to to, to certain peoples and they do that without even really knowing what they're talking about so uh it's it's not as quote-unquote problematic as people make it out to be but uh he takes lewis to this this old indian burial ground that what you bury there comes back to life and it really kind of touched me as as i was dealing with the death of portia uh, you know the line where Judd, Lewis asked Judd if he can help, and no, uh, Judd wasn't going to help. Uh, essentially, each has to bury its own, and we brought Portia home. It it was probably, I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not, I, but we had to do it. I, I felt we needed to do it. We brought Portia home. Uh, they wrapped her in a bag, and and we were going to bury her on, on our property. Uh, so we could have a little marker and a little place to to see her. Uh, I know she's she's not there, but we laid her to rest, and it, it was so hard uh, trying to find a spot to bury her because the ground on our on our property is very where I wanted to lay her to rest. Uh, it was very stony. I mean, I could get six inches down and. It just was hitting rock, and I couldn't get uh, a good grave dug. There was another place where I wanted to bury out behind this old oak tree in our backyard, and and the ground was so wet that I dug down a foot, and it's starting to fill up with water, and I didn't want to do that. So we found a place closer to the original spot I was going to lay her to rest, and we dug a grave and, and laid her to rest. And it was uh, reminiscent, it felt to me of of the scene where where Lewis is burying church and the bits that Judd, you know, each has to bury, you have to bury your own. It also kind of harkened to the funeral scene with Gage that we'll, we'll kind of talk about coming up. That scene where Lewis and his father-in-law are fighting and and you see this in the movie. Uh, the 1989 movie, and they jostle the casket, and the casket opens a little bit, and you see Gage's little arm there, lifeless. And I don't know, it just uh, something about just carrying that little cat wrapped up and and putting it in a grave. It made me think of that. It made me think of the digging of the grave in that stony ground, and it just I mean, none of it really correlates, but. You know, as I'm going through this experience, these things I'm doing, trying to dig a grave in a stone in the stony ground, pulling her out of her cat carrier, that little lifeless body, and uh, it was still warm. the The bag they used trapped the heat from her, and and she was still warm. And uh, we wrapped her in a blanket that we used with her we you know there towards the end we were giving her medicine a lot and we'd have to wrap her in a blanket we called it a wrapping her like a burrito or a porsche rito as i would call it and uh we wrapped her in that one last time and and laid her to rest and we buried uh her little laser pointer with her and we'd just grown her you know a couple weeks prior 
uh, a thing, a new thing, a cat grass, uh, that she lost interest in fairly soon just because she didn't, she just wasn't eating much at all. And, uh, but we planted that on top of her grave and I've got some other cat grass seeds I'm going to sprinkle there. But that whole experience of, of burying her just, it brought, elicited a lot of, uh, memories of the movie Pet Cemetery and the, the book as I, as I read those scenes, um, after that, you know, you church comes back to life after being buried in the pet cemetery and he's not quite the same. And I can't remember if it's there or, or in this time period where we get a lot of those great lines from Judd about, uh, I'm paraphrasing the this first part about how, you know, women think they're good at keeping secrets, but they don't know the, the soil of a man's heart. The soil of a man's heart is stonier. He grows what he can and tends it. And I think that spoke a lot to dealing with grief. Uh, for me, at least, uh, that line uh, kept coming up in my head where I certainly did not hold back purposefully from expressing my, my grief to my wife. But I knew seeing me upset got her upset. So I would wait until she would go to the store or or she were, were dealing with some other family issues uh, with her father. And, and when she would take her mom into the hospital to see him, uh, I would just let loose and wailing expressions of emotion, uh, crying over this, this little cat that I loved more than most people. And in those situations, I, I understand the, the line about the soil of a man's heart is stonier because, you know, as men, we're not supposed to, to show our emotion and we're not supposed to show our grief. And sometimes we have to hide that. And the whole line about the soil of a man's heart is stonier is about men keeping secrets. And in this regard, it's about uh, keeping the secret of the pet cemetery, keeping the secret of the power, keeping the secret of, you know, Lewis took Ellie's cat up to the pet cemetery to to bury it it's those types of secrets in the book but but i think it applies to a lot more than just that there was one line that uh i, I kind of forgot to talk about uh but i especially wanted to talk about because uh it probably is the line leading up to porsche's passing that uh, really stuck in my head from the time we learned that she didn't have long to the time we lost her. The whole line, it was after Winston Churchill or Church, the cat is hit and, and dies and Ellie's distraught over it. I, I got that. I, I understood that, that pain that the child has of losing a, a beloved pet. Uh, I felt that. And in the book, it, they, they do kind of a, a truncated version of it in the 89 movie but uh but the line in the book where she says uh, he's my cat he's not god's cat let god have his own cat uh i think that's the line you get in the movie but she goes on to say let god have any old or have all the damn old cats he wants and kill them uh church is mine and that played a lot in my head you know uh trying to reconcile uh you know i'm a i'm a person of faith uh, i'm not gonna hide that i'm not gonna pretend like it's not a part of me. Uh, I couldn't understand why God was taking our cat when there's so many horrible people out there in the world that deserve to be taken or someone else's pet that acts like a monster uh, or tears shit up. It's always, Portia was such a perfect cat. She was no trouble at all. She didn't get into any trouble. She was just so loving and why God was taking this cat, why God couldn't take years off of my life and give it to her. I couldn't understand that. I, I still, you know, I, in the back of my mind, I, I understand that sometimes you pray and the answer is yes. Sometimes you pray and the answer is no, you don't, I don't understand God's will. I know that. And, but sometimes in the back of my mind, I still wonder why why Portia had to go through this, why my wife and I had to watch Portia go through this. I, I, I can't wrap my head around it, but, but that line, that, that simple line of he's not God's cat, let God have his own cat. He's mine. That I, 
I felt that. I'd lived that for the past two months as we watched Portia slowly go downhill to the point where we had to end her suffering. But back to the post-church coming back uh, events of Pet Cemetery. Like I said, the soil of a man's heart is stonier. That's such a, a great line that, that I really thought a lot about. I also thought about the line, you know, it's the classic line from Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Sometimes dead is better. And I, that I think maybe in some odd way that has helped uh, dealing with the grief of, of losing our cat. Uh, that line, sometimes dead is better because Portia was so sick and her kidneys were failing and she was in pain. Uh, she was not far away from not being able to walk. Uh, she was very unsteady on her feet. If you, if she got bumped or bumped into something the wrong way, she would, you know, her hind legs would, would give out. And there towards the end, the last couple of days of her life, she did not like to be, she loved to be petted. She loved to have her chin scratched. She loved attention. If we were sitting there watching something or my wife and I were sitting there talking and not paying attention to her, you'd see her reach her one little paw up and just give you the, the lightest little tap to say, hey, I'm here. Pay attention to me. She loved attention. And uh, there towards the end, she just, she, it was like she didn't want to be touched. She, I, I think she was in so much pain. And like I said, it's hard to justify my mind that I had to essentially kill her. I mean, I didn't do it personally, but I took her to the vet. I told the vet to inject her and stop her heart. And it's hard for me to reconcile that. But, but I know that she wasn't hurting anymore. And that was the most important thing is that I didn't want her to suffer. And that line, sometimes dead is better. I, maybe it's right. You know, she's, She's not hurting anymore. And like I said, I, I'm, a, I'm a person of faith. And I know that there there's a misconception that, oh, all Christians believe that animals don't have a soul. You get that kind of shit in uh, the, the HBO series Raised by Wolves. Uh, I think it's a little more complex in that series than that. But, uh, you know, you get a lot of people that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some Christians out there that don't believe animals have souls. I personally think they do. You can't have a personality like Portia had and not have a soul. And I believe that like, the, like the old animated uh, movie says, all dogs go to heaven. I, I believe, uh, there's a spot in heaven for, for animals. And, and I hope to see her there one day. So I know, you know, because of my faith that I, that I'll, I'll see her again and she'll be in no pain. But until then, sometimes dead is better and she's not in pain anymore. So I have to hold on to that. I have to, I have to remind myself of that, that no matter how traumatic it was to watch her die, she was in a lot of pain and, and she's not, she's resting now. She's at peace. But that's where this story kind of turns uh, malevolent. It's, you know, uh, Judd takes Lewis to the pet cemetery to bury Winston Churchill, but uh, we find out that Winston Churchill is not the same when he comes back. He is uh, malevolent in spirit. And then we get the story of Judd and his dog burying it up there. We get Lewis kind of foreshadowing what's to come when he asked if anybody's ever buried a person up there. And Judd, oh, no, no, why would you do that? And don't even think it. I mean, we'll eventually get the story of Timmy Baderman after Lewis takes Gage up there. I believe that's when that takes place. But uh, but speaking of that, that whole scene with with Gage, you talk about Norman Rockwell pictures and idyllic days and idyllic uh, sceneries where they're having this picnic out in this field and everybody's having fun. Lewis is teaching Gage how to fly a kite and then all of a sudden, the tragedy of, of what happens and Gage being hit by that semi-truck, which I, I thought they did so well in the 1989 Pet Cemetery. Again, when I read it, I could see what uh, Mary Lambert put on the screen uh, because she, 
And, and granted, it helps because Stephen King wrote the screenplay for Pet Cemetery. So, of course, you know, you're going to you're going to see what he wrote, essentially, if, you know, she follows the script in, in any form or fashion. But uh, I, I love the way they did that uh, with the slow-mo and uh, Lewis screaming no. And you don't see the impact. You just see that little bloody shoe tumbling. And then the flashes of those photos of Gage and you know from the time he was a baby and it just it, it was done so very well because it was so heart-wrenching and so you know my stomach is nuts every time I watch that and the horror of losing a child is just something that I can't wrap my head around uh, through this whole experience with Portia I've told my wife that I I don't understand how parents with terminally ill children do it because from what mid-January when we found out Portia uh, only had months to live it, it felt like every day we're just waiting for her to get worse waiting for her to die and parents of terminally ill children God bless you because I don't know how you have done it I don't know how you did it I don't know how you're doing it uh, for anyone that's lost a child, I, I don't know how, you know, I'm this upset over this little cat that we just loved so much. I can't imagine how a parent with a child that was killed far too young deals with the pain, deals with the grief. Uh, I don't understand how um, parents with terminally ill children go through every day just waiting for the worst to happen. I, I My heart uh, cries for you. Uh, for for anyone that has uh, gone through this or is going through these sorts of things, I just I don't know how you I don't know how you do it, and you're much stronger than I could ever pretend to be. It's those sorts of things that that went through my mind as we're waiting on Portia to to get to the point where we had to do what we did. And this scene, this scene in the book and in the movie just epitomized every every horror, every nightmare scenario where you can't protect what you love. And that's always been one of my greatest fears is that, uh, you know, I, I remember one year at church camp, uh, I'm sitting there, we have to do this like morning devotional thing, read a Bible verse, pray. And I did all that. I'm just waiting for us to be able to go and have breakfast or, or what have you. But I just got it in my mind that something might happen to my family, my mom and dad, sister, and little brother. And I wasn't going to be able there to be there to protect them. And I, I wasn't that old, maybe 12 years old. And it just hit me. And I just started crying uncontrollably. And my mom had to come pick me up. And it was a whole, it was a whole mess. But, but even at a young age, I've just always felt this aching fear of losing the ones I love and not being there to protect them. And that's part of, I think, why this is so hard, uh, dealing with the death of Portia, because I couldn't save her. I couldn't protect her. I couldn't keep her from from getting so sick and, and being in so much pain that you know I, I just couldn't I couldn't save her and and I think that elicits fears that well if something happens to my wife and I can't protect her because that's all I want to do all I wanted to do was protect my wife and my little girl my little Porsche cat and my family as well you know my mom and dad and stepmom and my brother and sister and their families i just I, I love all them and i would do anything to keep them all safe i think that is some of the fear that came true that nightmare scenario that came true with portia and that's the nightmare scenario that we see play out in the death of gage creed and then after the death i i really understand the the state that lewis is in i think it's portrayed very well by the the 1989 movie lewis is just in this numb zombie state uh very soft-spoken very uh, you know hollow eyes and a thousand yard stare you know he's making amends with his father-in-law and he goes to shake his hand and it's just kind of this wet fish handshake and 
it's like he's not even looking at his eyes he's just going through the motions and and that is kind of how i felt it's just been a very numb few days now uh since we lost porsche and i've i mean maybe not as bad as lewis but uh but i have felt numb i just i i've cried so much i've my heart has hurt so much that I just, I feel like I'm just going through the motion sometimes. I feel uh, like a bit of a zombie sometimes. And and I understand that. And I thought that was portrayed very well uh, by Dale Midkiff in the 1989 Pet Cemetery. But I understood that. And then you can see the the gears turning in his head about taking Gage to the Pet Cemetery. And while the book goes into a little more detail with the exhuming the body i thought they did that very well you know i think dale midkiff did a a spectacular job of of portraying that that internal rationalizing what you're doing uh okay if it doesn't work we'll just uh, i'll take care of him and and rebury him and and I understood that that sort of rationalization of all the things you would do to to undo what's happened. I mean, I like I said, I'm a I'm a person of of faith. Uh, you know, am I the the most steadfast of of Christians? No, uh, I, I I falter so many in so many ways in, in my life over the years and, and even to this day. But there were times where I was like, I will sacrifice anyone or anything to whatever God will accept it if they will just heal my, my little cat, or make it so this, this little precious cat uh, doesn't have to go through what it's going through uh, the, to make her better, to, to make her whole again. You know, I know that was wrong to think that, but but the thoughts crossed my mind. And it also begs the question, if I were put in Lewis Creed's position to where I could bring my loved one, my little cat, back to life, would I put her in the pet cemetery? I, I don't think I would because the pet cemetery, what comes back is not quite what you put up there. And I wouldn't want anything but my little loving cat. But we see what happens when, you know, you, you play God. And like Judd tells Ellie earlier, I believe it's on the walk to the pet cemetery. He says, it's like many other things in life, Ellie. You keep on the path and all's well. You get off it and next thing you know, you're lost if you're not lucky. You see, Judd goes off the path and introduces Lewis to the power. Uh, Lewis goes off the path because he abuses the power by not only taking church to the pet cemetery or to the to the cemetery beyond the pet cemetery, he also takes uh, Gage. And when Gage comes back and kills Judd and Rachel, he puts both church and, and Gage down, but then he takes Rachel up to the, the pet cemetery. And I love the, the very ambiguous ending to both the book and the, the first film, the 1989 Pet Cemetery film, where uh, Lewis is, is back at the home uh, playing solitaire, waiting for Rachel to come back. And she comes back and all we hear is darling and then cut to black. That's such a nihilistic, uh, maybe not, I mean, you don't know what happens, but, uh, but you have a pretty good idea and, and it comes across as very nihilistic and very doom and gloom and, and such a sad ending, uh, a tragic ending, which, you know, sometimes, uh, Stephen King books have a lot of maybe not happy endings, but you know, the good guys defeat evil in the end. But every once in a while, you get a, a book like this where nobody wins in the end. And that's what I liked about the, the book uh, is that it, it wasn't a happy ending. It, it was a true horror story. And I think that's probably why uh, Tabitha didn't want him to publish this. Uh, because I think a lot of things hit too close to home. Uh, you know, he drew off the, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, drew off their daughter Naomi's cat dying, drew off of maybe close call with, with Owen running towards a road. Uh, there were a lot of parallels between this story and their real life and, and the subject matter of the loss of a child and what somebody might do 
to undo that, the horrific things that would come from that. Uh, I think it was a, a frightening thing for Tabitha and something she did not want to read. That is the, you know, Judd always talks about introducing Lewis to the power by, by exposing him to it, to opening his mind to it. And I don't think Tabitha wanted her mind opened uh, to that power, that knowledge. Uh, very much like the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil in, in biblical stories. She didn't want to bite the fruit to, to know. And I think Stephen King, that's probably why this book scares him uh, more than most. Like I said, he's very cavalier about the things that scare him. But I think this book is a representation of the things that truly do scare him and keep him up at night. And I, that's why I love this book. And that's why I love the original 1989 movie. Was it a perfect movie? No. Uh, did it delve into all the aspects of the book? No. But I think Stephen King wrote a good, what is it, uh, about, about an hour and 40 minutes. And I, I thought he, he wrote a, a great script uh, because it was very true to his books. And I'm very much a purist in that I don't want to see uh, a director's idea of what a Stephen King story should be. I want to see a Stephen King story on the screen and I don't care if it's a remake and we'll kind of get into that. But that's one of the things I liked about this is because uh, Mary Lambert did a good job with, with a, well, I'm sure a limited budget uh, by any standards, but she, she did a good job. Stephen King, I thought wrote a really good screenplay and and the actors that they got for this, while they may not be A-list actors, they did a really good job with this material. Deal Midkiff and Denise Crosby plays Lewis and Rachel Creed, uh, both you know accomplished TV actors. Uh, I, I like Deal Midkiff. Is like I said, is he an A-list actor? No, but I thought he did a good job with with the Lewis Creed character, Denise Crosby. Uh, of course, I always remember her from Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, is she a great actress? No, but I thought she I thought she handled the Rachel Creed material, especially the material about Zelda, because Rachel doesn't have a lot to do in the story other than just be uh, in opposition with Lewis in regards to wanting their daughter to be exposed to death or even talk about death and and then to relay that story of of Zelda as to why she's so averse to to, to talking about death but I thought Denise Crosby handled that very very well the little girl that played Ellie uh, fantastic job uh Miko Hughes who has done a lot of horror in his young career he he was the perfect most adorable Gage Creed, which made what happened to Gage Creed all that more horrific. And then Fred Gwynn is, you know, the guy's a, an icon. Uh, I know a lot of people give him grief for that, like, caricature of a Maine accent. But that's, you know, you when you go up to Maine, you you meet the old timers that... You know, that's kind of how they talk. It's it's a caricature for a reason because there are some people that uh, talk with that uh, deep Maine accent that, that Stephen King wrote on the page. You know, he, he wrote the Judd Crandall character like he would sound. And, and I think Fred Gwynn did a good job with that. I really liked him as, as Judd. Now, did they go into all the details? Yeah, no, you couldn't do that in an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, they didn't really touch on the Wendigo aspect of the story, which always fascinated me. You get that uh, one scene where you hear the howl and the crashing through the woods when they're heading to the to the McMack burial ground, but you, they don't really call it the Wendigo. They don't really talk about it. Uh, I don't know if there's any deleted scenes that maybe uh, do that. But uh, we don't see Judd's wife, and we don't get that aspect of it. We don't get the bits when, when Gage comes back, and he's appearing. I believe he's appearing to Judd as his dead wife. And they don't play into the secrets. You know, people that come back from the pet cemetery, no secrets. Uh, Timmy Baderman, when they talk about him, he knew things that uh, nobody should know. When Gage is come back and he's tormenting Judd uh, with images of his wife, he's talking about things that uh, Gage shouldn't know about, uh, these secrets. They didn't really play into those aspects of the story. But there again, like I said, you know, you, you only have so much 
uh, real estate with an hour and 40 minutes. But I really loved uh, the adaptation. It was it was as faithful as I, I had hoped the adaptation would be. Did it have everything I hoped it would have in it after reading the book? Uh, no, there's a lot more I wish could have been in there. And I really had a lot of hopes for the 2019 remake of Pet Cemetery, And had so much hope when I heard it was coming out. And then when I heard some of the details uh, before I saw it, I just was so disappointed. Uh, I like the cast. I like Jason Clark as as Lewis Creed. I like uh, Amy Sametz as Rachel Creed. I even wanted to like John Lithgow as as Judd Crandall. Uh, I really thought he could have played a Judd, good Judd Crandall, but he did not do a main accent at all. And you don't have to do the over the top caricature of a main accent like like Fred Gwynn did, but I would have liked at least some sort of, of main accent because that uh, soil of a man's heart, Estonia, that just, that rolls off the tongue so well in a main accent. It just sounds so haunting in that main accent or oh, sometimes dead is better. You know, that just, those iconic lines uh, from the book, I heard it in that main accent in, you know, you got those on the screen with the 1989 Pet Cemetery, and they did not have John Lithgow do a main accent at all. And I just thought that was a, a huge failing because I thought John Lithgow could have been a great uh, Judd Crandall. Uh, the thing I hated about this was the fact that they... Uh, they switched it. They made Ellie the one that dies and comes back. And uh, I, I get why they would want to do that because with an older kid, you can you can have more. But there's there's a lot of good small boy actors, young boy actors that probably could have pulled this off. You didn't have to go quite as young as Miko Hughes in in 1989's Pet Cemetery. You kind of got a little bit older. So you could have uh, a character that could articulate a little more, or you could have done some other things where you, when Gage comes back as as this zombie character and he's talking more like uh, this possessed being, they could have done some voiceover work or some ADR work that that could have, and maybe some some CG work on the mouth to make it look like Gage is speaking in this unearthly voice. Uh, there are things they could have done to make the Gage Creed being the character that was killed work. And they could have done it to be a little closer to the book. They could have done all the secret stuff. They could have, uh, they could have brought in um, Judd's wife early and, you know, she dies of a heart attack. Uh, Lewis tries to save her. That's why he tries to save the cat. There were just things they could have done to make the gauge aspect of this work. And they chose to not do that. They just chose to kill off Ellie. And it just came off as lazy to me. Uh, we did the easier thing. We killed the older kids so the older could come back and talk. And it totally made it not the story. It made it about this weird relationship between her and Lewis. And it, it just wasn't the story that Stephen King wrote. And then the ending where Ellie and Rachel and Lewis uh, are all zombies and they've come back from the pet cemetery and they surround the car and they're going to get Gage who's locked in there. Ah, it just came across as a little too Tales from the Crypt. It felt like hokey TV horror. So we're to believe that, you know, they're going to become this zombie family and who knows what they're going to go terrorize the town or just live happily in the house as zombies or I, I don't know. It's just I did not like the changes much like I did not like the the fundamental changes to the story that they did with the uh, the new versions of it uh, having Pennywise as this big clown spider with chase scenes and shit in the, in the climax of the movie. I just, it was stupid. I, I don't want to see some director's interpretation of the, what they think the Stephen King story should be. I want to see a version of the Stephen King story. I love on the screen. I don't need to have my expectations uh, subverted. I don't need to be challenged. I don't need to 
uh, see uh, somebody else with their own artistic license of what they think Stephen King should have done or could have done. Uh, I just want to see the Stephen King story, and I th- there's room for that. I know some people say, well, they killed Ellie because we've already seen Gage killed in the first one. Well, yeah, why do you not want to see that? Uh, I know you've already seen it, but that's the freaking story. There are ways they could have done a remake of Pet Cemetery, different from the Mary Lambert 1989 Pet Cemetery, uh, while still being true to the Stephen King source material. I think it would have been cool to 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 see a better cast. I, I liked the cast of the or er, 2019 uh, Pet Cemetery. I think you bring a cast like that with a little uh, better quality acting. Not not to disrespect Dale Midkiff and Denise Crosby, but they're TV actors uh, for the most part. Um, you bring in some some good quality Hollywood film actors. The atmosphere of 2019's Pet Cemetery was good. I liked uh, the creeping vibe that they had to it. Uh, I just didn't like how they changed the story. But you could go into other things. They touched on the Wendigo bit a little more with this. You could you could do that. You could, like I said, the the whole secrets aspect of those that come back from the Pet Cemetery. You could delve into that. Uh, Judd Crandall's wife, you could bring that aspect into it. Uh, the Steve character was, uh, he was there in the Mary Lambert 89 version, but not by name, I don't believe, but he was a, a background character. You could bring him a little more to the forefront like he is in the book. There's just a lot of things you could do to make it different, do things in different ways while still being true to the source material and not changing the story dramatically just because you want to do things different. I don't care what some director wants to do. Uh, I don't care how much they want this to be different than the versions that came before. Uh, I want to see the story done in a unique way, but a way that is uh, very true to the source material. Now, I know Guillermo del Toro has talked about how if he could do a Stephen King story, he would have loved to have done Pet Cemetery, and that he hopes that one day uh, he'll be able to do his version of Pet Cemetery. I would like to think. I have a lot of respect for Guillermo del Toro and uh, love, love his movies. So I would, even though Nightmare Alley wasn't what I was expecting to be, it still was a really good movie. Uh, I would like to think he would be true to the source material and he would do it in a creepy and bizarre way that would... I think it would really work. So maybe we'll get that sometime in the near future. But uh, but uh, I'm not holding my breath until then. <laughs> so. so that's my thoughts on Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, the the book, the the films, the two film adaptations. Uh, I really love the '89 version. Uh, I didn't like the 2019 version. Uh, and it's not for wanting to, because I did want to like it. I liked some aspects of it, but ultimately the story wasn't there like it is in the 89 and in the source material of the book. And this, this book has really uh, come to the forefront in my mind lately because of the, the death of our, our beloved little Portia. And that's really what this episode was all about. Just me dealing with that in some maybe cathartic way. I don't know, but that little cat was so special. Like I said on my personal Facebook post about this, I'm going to miss those little taps for attention. I'm going to miss her rolling around on the ground on her back, showing her belly. And I used to call them her tricks. She'd twist and, and spin around like that. I'll miss her constant wants for scratches on the neck and behind the ear and, and under her chin. I call them chinny chin chin rubs. I'll miss her sitting there watching scary tv shows and movies with me on saturday afternoons while my wife's taking her mom shopping i'll miss her sleeping by my feet in our bed and i'll miss the fact that even when i had the house to myself i was never alone because she was always there and i'll miss that sweet little face until i see it again and i'm gonna know my wife feels the same way she misses her just as much if not more than i and this is this has hit us both very hard it's why we didn't have an episode last thursday i just I just didn't have it in me. And we'll do that episode sometime uh, later this week or early next week. And I'll miss her coming in to visit me while I was recording my my podcast. I was going to record some meows of her and call her our, our shop cat. But we just ran out of time. So Portia, wherever you're at, we miss you. We love you. We can't wait to see you. 
and this episode's for her. So I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to listen to me. Uh, almost burst into tears throughout this whole podcast and uh, listen to me talk about our little Portia who we lost and how the Pet Cemetery uh, by Stephen King has just been playing so many aspects of that playing over in my mind as we've we've gone through this whole thing and again just thank you for taking the time to listen to me check out everything that's going on with odds bodkins curiosity shop on our facebook page uh you can always find the latest uh, trailers i i know i haven't been very attentive to the facebook page over the last couple weeks but we've been dealing uh with a lot of issues with portia and my father-in-law's in the hospital he's not doing well either you can check out all the latest trailers uh, TV shows and movies on our Facebook page are always posting articles from all over the internet to to keep you updated on the horror fantasy and sci-fi that we all love and affects every aspect of our life, good, bad, and indifferent. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, please share it, uh, like it, download it, uh, leave a review. Five stars would be awesome, but whatever review you give us, we, we certainly do appreciate it. And we, again, Thank you for, for taking the time to listen to this podcast. It means a lot. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha.